Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Ritchie, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here once again with our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Uh, It feels like it's been a really long time since we recorded, since last week we did our Immediately After the Emmys episode, um, and then we haven't talked about movies in like two weeks, and there's been some stuff going on. You know, it's it's a pretty empty release schedule for the rest of the year, but right now is a little bit of a lively time, which is nice, and much thanks to Netflix, which we'll get into. Um, So we're going to talk about a big rush of things. And then also in the back half of this episode, have Joanna's interview with Jesse Buckley, who was in I'm Thinking of Ending Things just a few weeks ago that we talked about, and is now on the fourth season of Fargo, which has premiered on FX. Um, and I feel like Jesse Buckley is a very big like film Twitter hero these days. So, uh, Joanna, good get. I'm excited to hear this interview. <laughs> I had nothing to do with the get, but uh, yeah, she's fantastic. So Yeah. But first of all, so yeah, we uh, last talked, I think, Richard, we were still in the midst of the Toronto Film Festival. Uh, we did a, an article wrapping it up, including the fact that Nomadland had won the Audience Award, which is a big, huge, traditional uh, Oscar precursor. Um, and it's a little unclear what that's going to mean this year, especially because there's a lot of movies that aren't going to be coming out this year. But one that is coming out that we had been wondering about um, released a new trailer as we were recording this. Uh, it's A24's Minari, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. You wrote about it there, Richard. The trailer, I mean, I'm a little raw from having watched the debate last night, but like it made me very emotional to watch the trailer for a movie I haven't seen. And all reports from Sundance suggest that uh, the trailer, that the movie has the goods, that the trailer is promising something that actually really is great. Oh, yeah. It's really great. I mean, it's probably the best thing I saw at Sundance. And I'm wary to talk about it because I'm just I'm just so nervous that like these release dates are going to keep changing. And I don't want to get people like excited for something great in the next couple months. But but just in case it does actually come out between now and I don't know, 2024. um, (laughs) It's it's written and directed by Lee Isaac Chung, um, who is an interesting independent filmmaker. And this is a really autobiographical piece about some version of his own family, um, his father uh, and mother, who are Korean immigrants, uh, moved to rural Arkansas so the father could basically, I don't know, create a version of the American dream, an agrarian farm life kind of thing. In some ways, it's a different perspective on the American immigrant experience that we tend to see happen in cities. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is v- not just like suburban, this is really rural. And so it, it feels like a a, a a new thing in that way. I mean, I'm sure it, I mean, it's not. There are other things about like this, too. But but the, the, the compassion and the the warmth and the just the humor that the, that he brings to the film and, and the cast does uh, that, at the very least in this year, is going to feel, I hope, very refreshing and uh, welcomed by people when they get to see it. I want to I want to present a little bit of optimism. So, um, A twenty four sent kind of a preview of this trailer yesterday and said that the release date will be no later than February twenty twenty one. Which, okay. um, given the new Oscar schedule, uh, that that does mean awards eligibility. So, I think Minari now gets to be something we get to solidly look forward to. Thank 
God, I think we really needed that. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for Stephen Young deserves an Oscar nomination. Yeah, round, r- round, round two. Let's do, let's do it. Ding ding. Yeah, for Burning, so. he got so much um, acclaim. Yeah. Uh, and maybe a, a few critics awards, but didn't quite get through. But it does seem like, I mean, especially given how few movies there are, like this seems like a, a small movie. But this might be the year for small movies at the Oscars. And if I could. You know, I mean, I would hate to pit father and son against each other, but Stephen Young is fantastic in the movie as the father who moves his family to this like trailer in the middle of nowhere. But Alan S. Kim, who plays his son, who I believe is kind of a stand in for the filmmaker, is incredible, like one of the least like precocious child performances, so natural, so funny, so moving that, you know, it's not as flashy as I See Dead People or Little Miss Sunshine, but like kids have been nominated before. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, and in fact, one in the case of Tatum O'Neill and Anna Paquin. So um, I, I, I wouldn't want to put that weight on, on his shoulders, um, tiny as he is. But uh, yeah, I mean, the cast in general is terrific. But yeah, Stephen Yun as the biggest n- name in America in the film, he carries it with a real humility. He's not the lead. It's not showy. It's a, it's a very much an ensemble piece, but um, I'm, I'm sure that his presence is what helped get it financed, as right, simple yeah. as that may be. Right, right. Well, no, but he's he's one of those, uh, you know, he walked walked off The Walking Dead. He left The Walking Dead, <laughs> one of, you know, um, one of the biggest show in the world or whatever. And he, what he's done, we talked about this back when Burning was something we were talking about on this podcast, but like what he's done with his fame, uh, you know, similar to like Pattinson or Kristen Stewart or whatever, where they're like, I've got scads of money and a lot of fame and let me like bring my star to these other projects and um, and also because I think that's genuinely what he's interested in doing. I just I love him. I, I'm so excited for another year where we get to talk about how great he is. So. And not to be like base, but like he spends a lot of the time like sweaty and farming. It, it's not, <laughs> I think I said that on our Sundance episode. Like it's not a bad look. I'll just I'll just put that out there. <laughs> I might be reaching. I don't know because I've only seen the trailer, but it gave me uh, like in America vibes. Do you like? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think oh, that's that was an such a lovely comparison. movie. Yeah, 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 and not just because it's about um, the Asian American experience, but like it's similar to the farewell. There's a wonderful grandmother character, mm. but it doesn't feel like in America didn't. Um, it this doesn't feel trite or cliched. It doesn't feel you know. Oh, here's the stock grandmother character, and here's the stock kid character. It just everything feels so particular and mm-hmm. individual. And and I think many filmmakers have tried to cinematize their own lives it doesn't always work but in this case it really really pays off i mean i left the theater i I just tweeted to to someone when the trailer came out that uh, i i left the theater kind of like sanjaya girl member from american idol who's Uh (laughs) weeping but also clapping and like you know like i was a mess and and but a happy mess I'm living for a Sanjaya reference in 2020. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. I'll never let it die. Um, somewhat of a tangent, but uh, speaking of Toronto movies that we didn't get a chance to talk about, um, Richard, in your rundown of uh, Sundance, I read what you wrote about Minari. You also mentioned having seen The Father, oh, which yeah. was a, a Sundance premiere. It also played at Toronto, which is how I saw it, uh, you know, virtually. Um, and you, I think you planted your flag basically like Anthony Hopkins is going to win a Best Actor Oscar for this. Um, yeah. The movie really is terrific. I think as we sit here and talk about Stephen Yeun, like, I don't know that we're going to be like, ah, oh, but Anthony Hopkins will run away with it because who knows? But um, I did want to shout out that movie, which is, it is coming out in December from Sony Pictures Classics. I, I think at this point we can count on these smaller movies that didn't, that don't have to make $100 million in theaters to break even, like the Tenets or the West Side Stories. Um, so I'm excited for the people to see the 
father. I, I thought that movie really held up well to, um, you know, I didn't know that much about it. And I kind of assumed it was gonna be like a chambery talky based on a play drama. But it's it's a lot more interesting than that. I liked it a lot. Yeah, it's really formally interesting. I mean, it, it's a very well-made movie and an intricately, interestingly made movie. Um, and I think the nice thing about The Father, now that you've seen it, Katie, that, and I think you'd agree, is that like it's so light and charming and fun. It's like it's not depressing <laughs> and terrifying at all. No, I'm kidding. It's about <laughs> Alzheimer's. It's like it's about really being trapped in your watch. home and reality, <laughs> yeah. like uh, collapsing I mean, around it's you. A per- it's a perfect. It's a perfect movie for right now in some ways. Oh um, God, yeah. It reminded me a lot of um, Marjorie Prime, which I think was also sure. based on the play. Uh, came out a couple years ago. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of like. It's just people in a room, but it, it tw- the way that the filmmaking can kind of twist your sense of what's real and what's not, um, it, it's really well done. I still have the post-it, like, and it survived a move. I have a post-it on my monitor that says Richard Chuchu's shot Anthony Hopkins. Oh, wow. Oscar, right. Oscar prediction from Sundance. So. Oh, God. I'm the rooting, fact that you I'm remember, you, Richard. I'm rooting. You remembering bets from before the pandemic started is very impressive. <laughs> it's a very on-brand for me. <laughs> I'm going to reshoot. He's going to win. I mean, if the movie comes out in a normal capacity, yeah. yes. he is going to win. It is an undeniable performance. Like... Um, in, in as much as I'm almost convinced Francis McDormand's going to win too. Yeah. Well, yeah. And he was, you know, Anthony Hopkins was so great in Westworld. Um, and he has this like commanding Anthony Hopkins vibe about him. And there is some of that in this, but also so much else. There's all these layers that like, I think you might expect someone uh, this late in their career who's already done so much can really coast through a lot of things. And there's no coasting in this, which is really impressive. Did you know that Anthony Hopkins has a TikTok? <laughs> I think I did actually. It's great. Is it like a grandchild who's got him on TikTok, or is it just him? No, oh. it's real Anthony Hopkins. And I mean, wow. like I know the other ones are real, but um, no, it's like it's the same as his Twitter, where he just like plays the piano sometimes, and then just like says stuff, and sometimes there's a cat, and it's just oh, great. Oh, sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Pretty um, great. Well, we should talk about um, kind of the thing we're dancing around is that a lot of release dates have changed since we last um, talked about movies on this. Um, West Side Story for me was the big one. Um, it moved out of Christmas all the way to next year. Um, I think that and Dune were kind of the last two big releases of the year that we were like, okay, so that could be like the big studio Oscar movie. Um, Dune is still in place. I don't know how long that's going to last. And I think now it's it just seems kind of clear that like this year's Oscar race will be smaller movies that don't really need to make a ton of money in theaters. Are, I, are you guys with me that that's a safe assumption by now? What's been interesting to me, and I, I think this is yes ending what you said and not moving off what you said, something that, <laughs> something that I've noticed, and this is a self-selecting audience because it's like our listeners, but there's like a, there's a Slack group of our listeners that I am aware of. And a lot of them were snapping up tickets to various film festivals, like virtual mm-hmm. film festivals, and like getting to watch, you know, the New York Film Festival or buying tickets to the Chicago Film Festival or something like that and getting to watch those movies. And so like maybe it's the... Maybe in some regard, it's something of the reverse of what I talked about when we were talking about Toronto in terms of like film festival stuff not reaching wider audiences. I'm like, okay, but at the same time, it's more they're more accessible to some other people than they mm-hmm. have been in years past. And so that's interesting as well. But I think I think that speaks to your like so so the awareness of something like Nomadland or stuff like that. It's like, are people going to be aware and excited about that at the Oscars? Well, maybe if they went to a virtual film festival, they will be. I don't know. You know? Yeah. I don't know what to expect about enthusiasm from like, quote unquote, normal people about the Oscars this year. Like, God, who knows what will be happening in April? It is, again, very hard to see into the future. Um, but I think if you're someone who has seen any of these movies, who has seen Minari or Nomadland or, you know, going back to First Cow, which... 
you know, I've been, you know, holding a torch forever since then. Like, it, it is going to be the year for that, I think. Like, unless they cancel the Oscars, which I don't think will happen. You know, you're not going to get a West Side Story uh, or, like, even, like, a Deep Water. Like, none of that stuff is coming. So here's what we got. No best original song for the new one they surely added to In the Heights or anything like that. Wow, the best original (laughs) song. I mean, there is it is going to be interesting. Like if it does wind up this way, like the visual effects category is going to be really strange. Like original song, like the stuff where studio movies really tend to dominate. Um, I hadn't even thought that far ahead. Well, something I wrote about um, when I kind of did like a what the Oscars could learn from the you know you know um, Mm -hmm. social distance Emmys was that like the Oscars are always bigger than the Emmys. And the Emmys got terrible ratings this year. So hopefully by April, they could figure the Oscars could figure out like how to attract people. But one of those would be kind of like the VMAs did. Like you can film some musical performances remotely, right? And not that the Oscars should become a concert, but like they could rely on five best song nominees and that would pepper throughout the night. But yeah. if there aren't big studio movies coming out with big songs, do they even have that? Which, you know, uh, from a from a broadcast concern, from a ratings concern, uh, that that is a big problem. I, I like the Trolls World Tour song. May, I, I, I'm going to I'm going to look into this for next week. I'm going to figure out some original song contenders because I have yes. no idea. <laughs> I'm very curious. Now. No, because the, the Academy's new rules there and they don't trolls aren't included anymore because they're oh, they they don't acknowledge trolls. Yeah. I really I feel like they need to revisit that policy. I agree. Um, I, agree. I need it's to a union. For that, it's a whole different union thing. It's, yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, so with Nomadland winning the Audience Award at Toronto and then, um, you know, kind of all these films dropping off the schedule, like that does feel like a big contender in a way that it might not at this point in other years. And I and I love Nomadland. I'd be really excited for it to kind of run the table this year. Is there anything else that you guys are feeling specifically hopeful for as being a contender now that it might not have been in a normal year? Well, a movie that I reviewed last week uh, is The Nest, another Sundance standout that um, actually is out now in some theaters and then it's going to be on the VOD in November. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a movie from uh, Sean Durkin who did Martha Marcy May Marlene God, nine years ago or something. Um, And then has done some TV in in England since, but this is his first film since then. And it's really dark and interesting. um, But most of all is Carrie Coon who gives this like show stopping performance as um, the wife of a man played by Jude Law who has dragged the family to his native England and she's kind of realizing the many compromises and deceits of the marriage. And she's just ferocious in it. She's so good. And normally in a normal year, like that would, that kind of performance would be a lauded indie thing. Maybe, maybe, maybe some critics awards or uh, a spirit award nomination or something like that. But with a much emptier field potentially. Um, and if the movie gets put in front of the right people, I have my fingers loosely crossed for her. Yeah. And I feel like it should be emphasized that, like, there are a ton of great movies to choose from for the Oscars. Like, the fact that we're not getting giant studio movies, like, Tenet's eligible. Um, But other than that, there's not that, you know, much big movies to choose from. But there's so much good that can come from this. And I feel like any sense that, like, the Oscars will be empty or they'll have to, like, scramble to find enough people to nominate. This is the year to let go of that thinking. There's way too much good stuff. Oh, completely. It's just going to be like, as you say, a different, a different angle of approach. But it's still a celebration of film, and especially in this year. Uh, not to sound too mawkish about it, but like, I think you know, like the stories that that we could find and get invested in have been really helpful. So 
Yeah. Uh, at least for me. So, yeah. Well, and the thing that we do, you know, it's an empty release schedule in theaters, but Netflix has a full slate um, that's coming and nothing has changed there as far as we can tell. And I neglected to put this on our on our rundown of what's coming, but The Trial of Chicago 7 uh, has been screening for people. um, And I've seen it twice now because I watched it and then showed it to my uh, my boomer in-laws who loved it, obviously. Um, And I, I really liked it. Joanne, I don't think you have seen it. And Richard, I think you have. Not yet. No. Okay. Yeah, I have. I'm I'm reviewing it next week for the yeah. Netflix release. Um, yeah, no, so we should probably we should probably yeah. not talk about it in too much detail, and we can get into it then. Um, but I do think that kind of emerged. Uh, Netflix did this very coordinated, and I think a little foolish thing where they made everyone like, or they made a lot of people like watch a live stream, so they all watched at the same time, and then got the thing that no one can get right now, which is like a big flood of tweets afterwards, uh, like everyone talking about it all at once. Um, and I think that really worked out for them because it's a it's a crowd pleaser, and it and it played really well even on my laptop. So I think that's a, a huge one to look out for that we can get into more later. Yeah, and it feels, uh, you know, as exciting as it was to have films like Parasite and Moonlight win big at the Oscars. I mean, maybe there will be this idea that doesn't The Trial of Chicago 7, uh, you having seen it, Katie can best answer this, feel like a throwback to like what used to dominate the Oscars. And I'm not saying it's better that 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 used to be the case, but like maybe there will be like that desire to cling to something that feels so Oscar-y in a way. Yeah, it's much more of like a classic like movie for grownups crowd pleaser than a lot of the other stuff that will be out there this year. So we can we can say this Netflix cul-de-sac actually now and talk about some things that you can watch now um, because, again, Netflix is often the only people who have new stuff. And you guys got me to watch Enola Holmes which I liked so much. And it apparently is very popular according to Netflix's internal metrics. Um, I believe I it. I don't think, I don't, it's honestly kind of hard to keep track on how anybody is making anything eligible. I think it's kind of a, if you say so, it is. But I don't think Enola Holmes is going to be put out there for Oscar consideration, but I liked it a lot. So, okay, here was the ride I went on with Enola Holmes. <laughs> I was made aware of the project and I was like, ugh, Oh, Sherlock's little sister. All right. That sounds silly. I don't really want to see that uh, very much. And then I watched the trailer and I was like, oh, this looks actually like a fun romp. Like, Joanna, you can be less of a snob and just enjoy yourself. And then at the very end of the trailer, they drop the writing credit, which is Jack Thorne, who's someone that I have had a very uh, tough time with in terms of the various projects that he has touched over the last uh, several years. He did like the Harry Potter stage play. He did his Dark Materials adaptation. He did the Secret Guard adaptation. Like in terms of someone who he's he's been tapped to adapt a lot of like British canon things. And and uh, I've just found again and again, I find he has no sense of what made the source material good in the first place. Uh, so I was then really pessimistic. But then it was like, you know, it's that first frictionless Netflix things where it was like Friday morning and I was like oh maybe I'll just background watch an old homes while I do like some and then it was just a delight and my sister texted me over the weekend and she's like tell me something to watch that will make me happy and not sad and I was like <laughs> watch an old homes have yeah. a romp uh you know I think a lot of people were maybe a little too over the board and saying like, oh my God, a star making turn for Millie Bobby Brown and stuff like that. And I'm like, I quite liked her in this more than I liked her in anything she did in Stranger Things necessarily. But I could have deleted five like cheeky winks to the camera and still been, uh, you know, all in on on the movie. So uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's sort of how I felt about it. What did you think, Richard? I was charmed. It's a funny project because it's essentially just a YA reimagining of Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes, like in the way it's filmed and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I thought about that um, a lot. Which, uh, you know, I like that Sherlock Holmes as much as like I think people groan at it. 
But I think Netflix is doing a weird thing where they're, they are almost without the probably the legal restrictions creating a kind of 50 studio system for its actors, you know, like you just see them popping <laughs> yeah. up in like other Netflix projects. And like uh-huh. as, as Millie Bobby Brown, the, the breakout star of, of Stranger Things to then get her own lead movie. I know it was supposed to be a theatrical release, but I, I don't know. I think it's interesting. I think she quits herself well. I think she rises to the task. Um, it's fun to have two like older guys who are of varying fame. Actually, probably Sam Claflin's probably less famous than she is, but you know, kind of supporting her. I thought it was charming, and and like you know, the kid, the the boy they find for her to kind of hang out with is like fun and cute, and like their romance is handled. I think in a in a very modern way. Um, so he's yeah, got, he's got such like a pretty unthreatening adolescent boy energy. Like he's got such yeah. like, a soft face and this he lovely hair, which is just perfect. Flowers. It's like mid nineties Leonardo DiCaprio all over again. <laughs> and the way they handle it is smart. They're not being so like o- overly aware of the times by saying the female protagonist can't have a love interest. It's like she can, it just can't be the only thing, you know, like, yeah, I, I think it's all really well proportioned. And I think it's also very funny that in the movie, I don't think this is a spoiler, the love interest, the Marquess of wherever, um, he gets, a, he gets a haircut, like <laughs> yeah. 20 minutes in the movie. And it's like, he, it, the haircut makes him look like any TikTok e-boy, you know, like, like from, <laughs> from like right now. Um, yeah. so it's just a gentle way of the film being like, okay, girls of today or boys too, obviously watching this, like he, he's in different clothing, but like pretty much you'd, you'd see this kid on TikTok and, you know, follow yeah, him. very true. No. And uh, one thing I did notice about and it like only slightly annoyed me, but mostly I just thought it was interesting, is that there's a lot of effort in the execution in the screenplay to make sure that audiences couldn't accuse Enola Holmes of being a Mary Sue. They're like, if she's capable of anything, we're going to show you exactly why she knows how to do all the things she knows how to do, um, which I don't think is something male uh, protagonists are burdened with. But in a post like Ray Star Wars world, I feel like that's something that that screenwriters think about, um, which is too bad. But uh, Anola Holmes is a is a, a fun heroine for for folks to latch onto. I think. And then also you get all these flashbacks of her like doing combat training with Helena Bonham Carter yeah. in their apartment. You're like, great. <laughs> yeah. Helena Bonham Carter is great in this movie. Yeah, really, and I was really thinking good. about that in-house at Netflix thing too, with her being on The Crown. About how if like if Helena Bonham Carter is now in the Netflix stable of the uh, Fifty Studio system, like great, pop her in anything. I will be excited to watch it. Yeah. Well, further on the Netflix dial, uh, as you know, if you're Morgan Freeman and you channel surf through Netflix, as he claimed, <laughs> as how he discovered the Kaminsky method. Um, Richard, you reviewed The Boys in the Band this week. Um, and I and I like to review because I, I knew that you didn't like the stage show and I was kind of prepared for you to not like the movie, which I do not think you did. But you you really went to efforts to say that you went in with an open mind, like you were ready to kind of change your mind about this whole thing. And, and then it didn't still work. Honestly, that sounds exhausting. So thank you for for going through that process at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I had seen the 1970, the William Friedkin version, the, the film version based on the 68 play in college, like with some like gay friends, you know, theater friends or whatever. But that was a long time ago. And so when I saw the the uh, the new production by Joe Mantello, produced by Ryan Murphy on Broadway in 2018, I kind of didn't really remember the dynamic of the show, or at least not as an adult, like an, a gay adult living in New York City. So kind of like the exactly who the play's about. <laughs> 
And I hated it so much. And I like tweeted about it. And some people got mad at me on Twitter. So other people were fine. And were just like, well, you know, you're, you're wrong or whatever. But and and anyway, it kind of stuck with me. And then when I found out the movie was coming out, I, I kind of, you know, did a big gulp and was like, oh, God, I can't believe I have to wait into this again. But in prep for that, I did rewatch the free conversion. And I saw the value of what the piece is in its time. Um, I think my real problem is it really shouldn't be revived if it's done as unthoughtfully as this movie is. Mm. Um, it, it's, I mean, other people liked it, like past and future guest Mark Harris really enjoyed it. He wrote a long piece about it for New York Magazine. It's gotten largely positive reviews. Um, so I, I might be somewhat in the minority there, but I just think it's so cartoonish and stagey and the acting, especially from Zach Kinto and Jim Parsons, is really over the top. I mean, they were big on stage and they're really big on film. And uh, it just really doesn't work for me. That might be simply an issue of of preference and taste, honestly. Like, it's just not my kind of thing. I, uh, I mean, whatever. <laughs> not going to go into my personal. <laughs> well, there's been, but, yeah. there's been a lot of discussion of a generation gap around this, right? That like, if you were not, you know, a, a gay man in the early '70s, you can't really understand like what this play meant at the time to kind of represent this. And you know, Richard, no offense, you were not like. A Gen Z TikToker. Um, so I'm I'm curious about like you How kind of standing in, in you. <laughs> you kind of stand in between this earlier generation and then like a current young generation. Like I just I wonder what a 22 year old would think about this at all. Like if it would feel like it's from a different planet. Yeah, I mean they might. I mean I think that my particular generation. I'm 37. Uh, we were a little bit, you know, like 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 mores were changing culturally when we were in high school into college. And so, you know, I came out in high school, but many of my friends didn't until college or after. There was certainly not a, t- a huge onslaught of mass media about gay people, targeted at gay people. We were close enough to the generation that really had suffered terribly, the generations, plural, that had suffered during AIDS. And so we're always in this kind of, I mean, I think every generation thinks that they're like in the weird question mark problem generation. But like, I really think historically, people my age, gay people my age kind of fell into this weird liminal space. And I think that this production is a, is meant in some ways to bridge that gap. I mean, most of the actors in it are in their 30s and 40s, you know, so people kind of of my generation sort of reinterpreting this thing that their queer elders um, held up as this like vital early you know, pre-Stonewall thing, uh, you know, this, this sort of, like, insistence on, like, gay visibility. Um, so it comes fraught, this this piece comes so, like, laden with meaning, um, both personally and culturally for people, that it's kind of hard to grapple with, and I think that that's probably also what's what incited such a, like, repulsed reaction for me, is that, like, mm. it, the, the thing just hits big, either, either good or bad, you know, and for me feeling as part of that kind of like, I don't know, lost generation or whatever. Like I, I not lost at all, but, um, but sort of middle generation, um, mm. feel a little strange. I don't then know though what a younger gay person is going to, because I think so much of it is going to seem like ancient in terms of the humor and the whole, you know, this, it's this pageant of self-loathing and, you know, I, I want, I mean, I, I know that there are kids today who feel that and i and i you know i wouldn't i wouldn't ever begin to say that like everything is fixed but 
Yeah, I don't know. I'll be very curious to see how the whole thing is received when it's out. I mean, it's already out. But. Well, it's like coming, what, two weeks after Ratched premieres, which I think I guess Ratched is getting watched a lot. But, you know, it's been a big year for Ryan Murphy adjacent Netflix projects. And then the, the prom, which feels like if anything else, like if the Golden Globes are going to nominate anything, it's going to be the prom. So I wonder how this kind of will fit into the overall arc of Ryan Murphy and his extremely expensive Netflix deal and, and how it's kind of rolled out in force this year. Yeah, I mean, the, the the Ryan Murphy of it all is its own podcast. I feel like that that whole thing, um, and it's interesting that that's happening right as Bridgerton, um, Shonda Rhimes' first show for Netflix is, I think, available for critics to screen right now. These are the two huge kind of you know tentpole production TV deals that Netflix did in the past few years, and I, I don't know that Ryan's. Ryan Murphy's is going <laughs> that well. Um, but I think from a beyond my own perspective, like like Boys in the Band is going over well. Like it's been well reviewed. I think people mm, seem mm-hmm. eager based on the responses to like when I tweeted my review out, like people are love it or hate it, definitely going to watch it. Um, granted, I'm that's some confirmation bias based on who follows me and who I interact with on Twitter. But like, I don't know. I, I think that like in some ways, a, a kind of accept, like a violent reaction positively or negatively is the point. And, um, and so, I mean, mission accomplished, even though I gave it a bad review. I'm also, um, it's, it's a little bit of a sidebar, but the way that this kind of exists as a filmed version of a play, like not quite, they, but they had the original cast. Um, and then what the constitution means to me is coming to Amazon in a couple of weeks. And obviously Hamilton was earlier this year. It's, it's been an interesting year for letting Broadway shows have a second life, which I think if you're on Broadway and there's no prospect for reopening anytime soon, like maybe that's a relief. It's just like some of these works get to live on at all in front of the mm-hmm. rest of us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I this has made me more curious to see what other theater makes its way to to film. Even you know, you know, between like literally a stage thing like Hamilton or this, and like I I think that a lot of these plays are going to have to be sort of re um, interpreted for film because, you know, gathering in public might not be possible for a long time. <sighs> if, if Hugh Jackman's Music Man uh, is a Netflix <laughs> one night special, I mean, I don't know. I guess I'd like, I, I just want to see it. Okay, and for our last uh, show to catch up on, um, Joanna, we're going to talk, we're going to have your interview with Jesse Buckley, but uh, mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about this season of Fargo. Um, you have been, I feel like, a, a Fargo you kind of like spreading the gospel since the very beginning. Um, and I, mm. I haven't watched any of this season yet, but I'm really curious about it. Like Chris Rock being on it is obviously intriguing. It's like kind of a further back in the past period piece. Um, how is it? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I've been, I have been a huge Noah Hawley fan since Fargo season one premiered on FX. So low these many years ago. And, uh, you know, he sort of his, the Hawley empire is sort of like spread from there in terms of like, you know, he did Legion and then he did uh, the Natalie Portman astronaut movie. And then uh, he's doing this. I think he's still doing the Star Trek movie. I think he's still on that project. And my, you know, from afar diagnosis is that like maybe Noah Hawley has spread himself a little too thin would be my take on things because uh, there's a lot to love about Fargo, but it doesn't. And we should say, of course, Fargo is is sort of infamously one of the one of the biggest productions that was shut down by COVID that like then came back and finished and is now premiering. And so there was like a big COVID interruption of of making the season. And so like I just feel like 
for me, Fargo needs like three more spins through the wash uh, in order to like, you know, tighten it up to where like Fargo season one was. I feel like Fargo as a show, you know, as an anthology show is something that's just gotten like looser and wilder as it's gone on. And there's virtues to that, especially I mean, our guest this week, Jesse Buckley actually love her on the show. I think she's incredible. I think she, what she's doing is amazing. It's like a physical transformation without like makeup. It's still like body work, physical transformation. But she's on a quirk level that I find really enjoyable. But then like sort of a lot of other people in the cast appear to be like meeting her on that quirk level. And it's like, it doesn't feel as calibrated as maybe past seasons of Fargo have felt in terms of like balancing the oddball performances with a human story at the center that you feel like you can get swept up in. So that's my take on Fargo season four. It is an incredible cast. Like Chris Rock, I mean, Chris Rock is great. I mean, he's, he's sort of like kind of the straight man in the center of everything, but like he's, he's great. Uh, Schwartzman, Jason Schwartzman, who I love in a lot of other projects is one of the people that I could turn down a notch or two. My boy, Ben Wishaw's here, uh, you know, and, and a lot of like, uh, fun character actor faces, you know, that you, that you exactly what you want to see in a Fargo. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just feels it feels a little overstuffed to me, you know, in the way that like later Legion also felt. Uh, Richard, do you have any any thoughts? Well, I think, first of all, Joanna, it's a coup that you got him credited in the opening credits as Joanna's boy. <laughs> I, I thought that was... She negotiated that for yeah. a long time. <laughs> That's well done. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I... I think I've defended the Fargo series longer than some people have. Like, I, I even liked the most recent season with, like, Ewan McGregor. That was the most recent season, Me right? Me too. Yeah, yeah. I liked yeah. it too. Uh, and I think a lot of people have sort of soured on it. I mean, because the, the first and two are really good. Um, this one, it feels like basically what you said. It's sort of hampered by its ambition and by its creator's overextension of himself. But as is true of any Fargo season, it does at least contain really interesting performances. Um, I don't always mean interesting good in that in this case, but mm. um, but it's an odd assemblage of actors. I mean, who would have guessed that Chris Rock and Ben Wishaw and Jason Schwartzman would all be like <laughs> in a period gangster story together? Yeah, and, uh, true. You know, exactly. Like, it's so fucking weird. But. Um, but you know, there's kind of that's a, there's a lark to that, and it looks great. It's like a high end production, you know. So, so yeah, I mean, I I, I think it's definitely worth checking out, and you know, not just because we have her, uh, you know, your interview with her, Joanna, but like, but like, it's really continually exciting to watch Jesse Buckley's star just kind of like shoot into the stratosphere. I mean, absolutely, and, and to do such a different role from I'm thinking of anything to do for, that was so different from Wild Rose. Like, she just keeps showing us these facets of her talent at like barely 30 and i think that's really really exciting she told me that she got she believes she got the i'm thinking of ending things role because of her fargo screen test like that they Hmm. got a hold of it and saw it Uh, and i can kind of see the bridge between the two in terms of like a midwesternness it's obviously like dialed up to like a frenzy in fargo but yeah that and then also i talked to her about this UK film, Misbehavior, which just hit VOD in the States last week, and it's about this women's rights protest of the 1970 Miss World pageant, uh, a, a real life event uh, that I was unaware of. 
Uh, but it's got a great cast. It's got like Keira Knightley, Reese Fons, Greg Kinnear doing a Bob Hope impression, uh, Gagum Bathara. And it's just like, it's one of those like very kind of cozy British movies about a real life event um, that you're glad to have watched. And she's great in it. And, you know, she's just like, she just has an energy. And like the fact that she can calibrate that energy into different tones and moods in her various projects, like that's her versatility. But no matter what she's doing, for me, watching Jesse Buckley, like I, she, I can never take my eyes off of her. I think she's just incredible. So remember yeah. how she's in Judy? How crazy that is! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she's got this like very lovely, small supporting role in Judy, and I guess I had seen Chernobyl right before that, and I was like, "Huh, she's everywhere." She so she's right now. She she t- spoke to us from Greece, where she's been a two week quarantine. Uh, I think they, it's just about wrapping up now uh, because she's about to start filming on Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut. And this film has an incredible cast. It's, uh, you know, Peter Sarsgaard, who's contractually obliged to be in all Maggie Gyllenhaal films, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but also Dakota Johnson, Olivia Coleman, and Paul Meskel and uh, Jesse Buckley in Greece. God, Great. imagine <laughs> running away to Greece with those people. Like, right? Why yeah. didn't they invite us? Quarantined <laughs> in Greece. Come on. Oh, I know. <laughs> So yeah, so so um, I, I'm ready to call this Jesse Buckley fall between I'm thinking of ending things in Fargo and Definitely. this behavior, et cetera. So let's, should we do the interview? Should we kick off Jesse Buckley fall? Uh, it obviously starts with my interview with Jesse Buckley, right? <laughs> yes, let's, let, <laughs> let's let it begin. Let's do it. We are thrilled Beyond thrilled to have on the podcast, the great Jesse Buckley, star of Wild Rose, of Fargo season four, of I'm Thinking of Ending Things, and also of this great British film that uh, just hit streaming stateside, Misbehavior, that I hope you all check out. Uh, The lovely Jesse Buckley is here. Jesse, the last time I saw your face with my face was at South by Southwest, the film festival for Wild Rose and you performed a set on the stage and I was just like dazzled and mesmerized by your singing and I've been such an avid fan ever since so I'm so I'm so happy to talk to you today um so I'm I'm just curious what's the wildest thing that's happened to you since last I saw your face with my face god I don't know I think I had a cigarette with Brad Pitt once I nearly had a whitey because I was don't really smoke and it was all very, <laughs> it was all very too much. And he was lovely. So that's, anyway, that's probably the most embarrassing of the wild things that happened to me. I think I was just having one to deal with the situation and was probably, had drunk too much, <laughs> had drunk one glass of wine too quickly and was having a cigarette in quick succession and inhaling quite quickly. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and then he came out and he was just chatting, you know, he was just chatting to us. Or what, anyway, I just feel like, I feel like a bit of a tit even telling you this, but it came out of my mouth, so there we go. He's just so lovely and we are just having pizza and, you know, it was somebody's, but anyway. I think that's a perfect, what my wildest thing that has happened to me this past year story, uh, pizza and a cigarette with Brad Pitt. Um, so you have this really enviable sort of double slate uh, this fall, triple slate, if you count misbehavior, of uh, this you know, this Charlie Kaufman project, I'm thinking of ending things, and uh, your, your scene-stealing work in Fargo season four. And I'm wondering, you know, when you play these two characters who are very different, but uh, both very heightened uh, in their mannerisms, 
Americans uh, and in their in their existence. You know, how do you how do you approach that uh, as opposed to some of the other more, I mean, would you say like naturalistic roles that you've done? I guess they're both heightened worlds. So that requires you to, you know, you're not doing like a Ken Loach film or something. It's it it requires you to expand, you know, and in a different way. And and for some reason that just both happened that, you know, they kind of came out at the same time. And actually I ended up doing Fargo, getting Fargo. Fargo came my way when I was shooting I'm Thinking of Ending Things. And I think they'd seen my tape for I'm Thinking of Ending Things. So that's how that happened. And then I was on set with Jesse and David and he was like, I was like, should I do? And they're like, definitely, you're going to have so much fun. So yeah, it's been fun. It's so fun to like, I, I, I love all kinds of cinema, but I think humans and characters are heightened, you know, they're bold. And and when you get to be part of a world which like tells you go to go to the extremities of where where that might live, it's so fun. It's really fun. Like, you know, the Coen brothers have a really like heightened tone and like world where all their characters live in that. And yet there are also people that you also recognize in a way. And and Charlie's films are surrealist art pieces, but you also recognize the emotions of that, even though they're taking place in a heightened circumstance. One aspect of your Fargo performance that's completely fascinating is this sort of is the physicality, the walk for this character, um, you know, the way your whole body changes from what I've seen you do uh, in other productions. And I'm wondering if you talk about uh, how you put that physical performance together. Yeah, that kind of just came out of a notion. <laughs> I just I think when I read her in my head, well, my first instinct of her was like she was a female Grim Reaper. And then I just I just thought she was like kind of birdie in my head, you know, there's just something birdie and she was on the run. And and yet she I guess just where my mind was being drawn to her, like things like like something quite birdie and Edith Piefy and and I just liked that she was a bit of a creature, you know, she didn't belong on human soil. She was half the afterlife and half in real life. And I think that just kind of came out. <laughs> I don't know what happened. One thing that I loved learning about you when I was sort of doing some research for this is that your career was already on like an upward trajectory. And you went to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, RADA, like after you had already, you know, achieved some great heights. Uh, and so I'm wondering, you know, what was that decision like for you? Why did you decide to go back to school at that point in your career? I guess just a chance to quietly nurture what I thought I might be able to offer into uh, industry and, and a family that I really cared about, which was unique to me and to take that time to discover and ask questions and push boundaries of even the stuff that I was being presented with in the school, you know, and to make it speak uniquely from my voice and also be a bit naughty and get drunk in the pub on Friday night is always very important. <laughs> that's probably the most, that's the most important. 
Uh, it sounds like you had your priorities exactly right. Um, one of my favorite sequences in I'm Thinking of Ending Things, you get to do so much uh, in this film in terms of slipping in and out of various personas. But my favorite thing that you do in this movie, you know, which is currently streaming on Netflix if folks haven't watched it, incredible multifaceted performance from Jesse Buckley. But my favorite part is when you slip into this Pauline Kale section. Uh, the film critic Pauline Kale, you sort of adopt this persona as you're dissecting a film uh, in the car. So I'm just wondering what your approach is for something like that when you're going to not just discover or explore something different for your character, but to, you know, slip into an imitation of sorts uh, of of another person. I think it just kind of came out of the script, really. I, I didn't know who Pauline Kale was before I read the script. And then I was like working on dialect and and like even just the dialect for that woman, it was never something, you know, rooted in a place because she, there is no place that she comes from. And, and I and something that me and Charlie, you know, from our very first interaction was that this is somebody who shapeshifts and is molecular and explodes and then embodies other things. But she has she's not controlling it. It's just something which is also coming from Jake and... um and what his memories are. And so, I don't know, I think it just, I just started watching Paulina Kale and then probably someday on my bike, I just started speaking like, <laughs> listening to her in my headphones, trying to copy her voice and that kind of thing came out. But it was fun. And then when we got into the car, like it just took on its own thing. Jess, I think Jesse was slightly a bit terrified. He was like, oh God, here here comes a weird British lady. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I think it was like a kind of fear of uh, some haunting aunt or something like that. <laughs> uh, all right. So because this character that you're playing and I'm thinking of ending things is so largely, you know, a concoction of the male protagonist uh, played by Jesse Plemons, Jake. It's it's sort of a, a result of his own imaginings. Um, and so because that's true, when you're creating this character, when you're shifting her personas all over the map uh, in this film, do you work in concert with Jesse Plemons to do to create something like that? Is it much more of a collaborative process than it would be if you were creating the character on your own? Kind of. Although I guess the thing is, is like, I can't play that I don't exist because you exist as you are in each moment. So each moment was its own reality. And then, you know, seconds of film, that changes in itself. So it's something which is constantly like expanding and bubbling out. And um, and I guess as the script, as the film goes on, maybe there's an awareness of what might be happening and a kind of falling down in an avalanche of things and not being able to get out. So yeah, we kind of discussed it, but I think we just played the scenes as if they were real. But that we're like that in real life. Like, you know, we have a weird phone voice when the bank calls or something like that. And then you, the voice, you know, like there's all, we're always adapting ourselves to the circumstance that we're living in in that moment. And, and we're not even aware of it. That's the thing. And when you're in a situation where actually that becomes dangerous or precarious, you know, there's something about your own survival instinct, which probably kicks in to try and you become alert, you know, and it's not something that happens quickly. It's something that you then your your life is then on the line and you're you're trying to survive. 
So I was watching Misbehavior, which just became available here in the States. Um, and this is the film you made with an incredible cast, Kira Knightley, Gugu Mbatha-Ra, Keely Hawes, Reese Fons, like all, all my faves. Uh, Greg Kinnear doing an, uh, a bonkers Bob Hope impression, all this sort of stuff. You play this real life women's rights activist uh, named Joe Robinson, which is really fun uh, because that's my name. <laughs> and um, uh, but this is a real life woman who was part of this protest uh, around the Miss World pageant, nineteen seventy, and uh, this this protest sort of helped spark the women's rights movement, at least in the UK. And I'm wondering when you play a Joe Robinson or when you play like a Ludmilla from Chernobyl, these women who are still alive and around, what pressures and what and what delights comes with doing something like that? Oh, that's a whole other bucket of joy because, you know, it's something very tangible. I can never be that person, but you're trying to understand what their view of the world is from where they've stood. And it's gorgeous, like these amazing women have crossed my heart and left really important lessons on my life for me, you know. And when you get the chance to meet them or, you know, meet them on the page or meet them in person or watch things about them, it's it's both incredibly powerful and also very humbling. And you, you, you just realise how, can I swear, how fucking cool people are (laughs) you know like the things that people are are able to overcome or achieve or change in the world is incredible you know and and I feel really lucky that these women have have also they've inspired me to not limit myself I don't know who I am or what I might be able to be but um, I definitely feel lucky that these women have inspired something powerful. So you let me know uh, before we started recording that you are in Greece right now quarantining so that you can start work on a new project. You're working on The Lost Daughter, which is uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's feature film directorial debut. And then once again, you're just working with a cast of all of my favorites, including Olivia Coleman, Paul Meskel of Normal People, and Peter Sarsgaard. So this is just going to be in, based on an Elena Ferrante book. I'm just really, I'm really, really excited for this project. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, specifically about it. I mean, I don't know how much you can tell me about it or whatever, but something I'm really specifically interested in is this idea of you working with a director who's also an actress. And if you've had any conversations with Maggie, so far and how if at all do they differ from talking to like a Charlie Kaufman or you know a Noah Hawley or someone else on a different project honestly I just think Maggie's going to be phenomenal I just think she's going she I I just think she's a leader yeah I just think she's going to be a fantastic like collaborative leader and she understands both sides of the camera and I feel incredibly safe going on this journey with her. And I also just think she's a real kick-ass woman. And with this material, I can't think of anybody better to go on this with. Like, truly, I can't I, I can't wait to get going with her. So, yeah, I feel like she's be, she'll have be able to have an empathy for all the parts of it. While also, like, for some reason, this story has come her way 
And she has a need to tell the story and a story about motherhood and womanhood and life um, and rebirth for a reason and has wanted to do that by being somebody who's like curating it, you know. And I think she's going to kick ass. I think she's going to be amazing. I'm somewhat notorious on this podcast, maybe only in my own mind, for turning any conversation into a discussion of musicals. That is my uh, superpower as an interviewer. It is not at all difficult to get there with you. You have a musical background. You appeared in a little night music on the stage. So, you know, you've got the chops. We know it. We've seen it in Wild Rose if we didn't get a chance to see you on the stage. I'm wondering, is there a musical that you have in your mind that you would most like to do uh, if you were asked to do a, another singing role in, in a film? And I really love like, I love like the dirty German Berlin era. <laughs> like, I like Cabaret and Kurt Weill. I love Kurt Weill stuff. Like, I think it's so like just delicious and naughty and dark. So, yeah, I probably am drawn to that kind of stuff. Okay, so I'll be counting down the days for Jesse Buckley stars in Three Penny Opera. <laughs> or something like that, yeah. Is it true that when you were in school, like when you were, you know, much younger in, in, in student theater, that you were often cast in, in the male roles in, in your student production? <laughs> what was going on was that I was in, in an all-girls convent school and... Um, uh, and I actually remember like the first because it's so it's very like it's a quite a momentous moment when you get to do the shows in school in the school that I was in and, and they do amazing shows and this woman called Mary Butler who's the teacher there is just was just fantastic and one of the biggest kind of inspirations for me really but yeah I think the first year that I auditioned I think it was Westside oh no no it was Chess and um I wanted to be the girl and I didn't be the girl and I was I was heartbroken. Like it was my first rejection. I think I like cried in the, in the toilet. But then it was so great. And 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 actually how to define the girls from the boys was we all all the men had just French plaits, like two French plaits, quite boxy, um, musty red suits. Like I had this excellent way to boxy red suit and for some reason as well they used to put like red dots on the corner of in the middle of our eyes that we didn't look cross-eyed to the audience I, I don't know if this is a true thing or not if that actually happens that you look cross-eyed if you don't have red dots on the inside of I've never done it anywhere else in my life professionally <laughs> so we all had red dots on the inside of our eyes boxy red suits and plaits so yeah I was Freddie Trumper in chess then I think I was Jesus or something in the next one. And then I was, yeah, Tony West Side Story in my last one. <laughs> it's all very funny. I don't know if you think of it this way, but I, I've just, I've been sort of dazzled by everything I've read about what you've done leading up to now. Now it's just like Jesse Buckley, Jesse Buckley, Fast and Furious, but there was so much road that led up to it. Uh, and I don't know if you think about that in terms of like the before time, the before I achieve this level of success or fame or work or whatever. Um, but I'm curious if if you if you do think of it that way, if there is something you did that you got up to in the before time that best prepared you for for what you're facing now, which is just 
a lot of, you know, work and attention. I don't really feel like it was a life before. I, I've always worked, you know, like I moved to London when I was 17 and I've loved every single part. Like when I was 17, I couldn't believe it. Like I couldn't believe that it actually happened. And then there was times when it didn't happen, but I kind of just loved that as well. And I always found something like I ended up singing jazz in around London. And then that was like its own little experience in my life and singing in these clubs where nobody was listening to me. And, you know, it was I felt like I was kind of Barbara Streisand in the 60s. <laughs> and then equally in between things, I would sell cereal in markets in London. And I liked that. I don't know. I, I guess. I'm grateful for all the parts because I think if I have to tell something human, I have to have lived humanly as well. And I'm not interested in a veneer. Like I'm interested in like human, you know, a comp, all the things and all the journeys and all the chapters. And I have so many chapters that I'm yet to go on. And, um, you know, who knows? I might it might all go away tomorrow. So, uh, and then that'll be fine. I'll, I'll figure out what else is next. It's all moments. A very Sondheim ending. And, uh, and you'll always have quarantine in Greece as a moment. So there's that. Um, well, thank you so much, Jesse Buckley, for, for chatting with me. I really, really appreciate it. I'll always have quarantine in Greece. <laughs> I hope not. Oh, God. I'm glad, I'm glad you met your fellow Joe Robinson. Yeah. <laughs> She can I just say she is also kick ass. Like she's, she's the kind so of woman I like, she's per she's got purple hair, I man, and she know. wears biker boots. I was like, you are my hero, and she's just rocking. Like she's genuinely rock and roll. So yeah, yeah. I saw a photo of her. I think it was in the Guardian, um, and she's got like pink and purple hair. And I just thought, yeah, that's that's goals. That's the that's the Joe Robinson I aim to be. That is that is what I will be shooting for in my life. And she's also, you know, she became um, a maternity nurse, which is just such a, yeah, 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 midwife. It's just so gorgeous. But yeah, anyway, your namesake is (laughs) Annie Thank you so much. (laughs) All right, have a good one. You too. Bye. That does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Please find us on uh, VanityFair.com and uh, Richard's reviews of many great things and join us great writing and things from me once in a while, too. Um, you can find us on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Richard. Rylas. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best reason that new mutants won't be winning any Oscars goes to Richard Lawson. The Academy's new rules, they don't, trolls aren't included anymore.